Hey everybody, welcome to another Ithaca Bound podcast episode. I'm your host, Andrew Schiestel, and this is the podcast where we explore history and mythology in the Mediterranean basin. I'm joined today with Dr. Leonora Neville for a conversation about the life of Anna Komnemny, royalty, historian, intellectual who lived in the Byzantine Empire in the 11th and 12th centuries. Dr. Neville joins the show today to share more about what's known of Anna's life, including the early period of her life and education, some of her writings, her family life, what her ambitions may have been, and more. Dr. Neville is Department Chair and Professor, John W. and Jean M. Rowe Chair of Byzantine History at the University of Wisconsin-Madison in the U.S. She's the author of a number of publications, including a number of books, including the monograph, Anna Komnemny, The Life and Work of a Medieval Historian, which was published by Oxford University Press. Welcome to the call, Leonora. Hi, thanks for having me. So who was, we'll start with a broad question, who was Anna Komnemny? I regard Anna Komnemny as one of the greatest women intellectuals of the medieval era. She was the first woman to write a full-scale history in Greek um, probably up until the 19th or even the 20th centuries. So she's a phenomenally good historian and a, a rare mm. woman writing history in Greek. Uh, she was an intellectual mm. who also enjoyed philosophy and writing letters and patronizing scholars to write commentaries on Aristotle and a real powerhouse intellectual of the 12th century, lived her life in Constantinople, uh, was mm. born in the late 11th century and died sometime in the middle of the 12th century. She's famous, mm. not nearly so much as an author and famous for her scholarship, as she's famous for being the daughter of the emperor, Alexios Komnenos, mm-hmm. um, who ruled from 1081 to 1118. and. Often she's known as the uh, princess who wanted to become empress and tried to take over the empire and become ruler instead of her brother, Ioannis mm. Komnenos. Mm. Um, and her coup supposedly, she had a coup and supposedly it failed. Mm. And some historians hold that she was then cast into a nunnery where she spent the rest of her life uh, stewing in hatred and anger. One historian writing in the early 20th century said that after her coup failed, she was only 30 years old, but her life was over, Um, which is kind of problematic because it means that rhetorically, at least, she wrote the whole of her history at the point in which she was already dead. Um, And so her whole long life as an Mm. intellectual and a historian happened in that story after she had sort of failed at her real life goal of being a politician. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So a very interesting person. Um, I don't think she tried to have a coup against her brother. I think that there were a number of reasons why people were gossiping about possible succession, but that nothing beyond gossip ever happened. Mm -hmm. Uh, She refuted the case made against her father's rule and wrote a history that very strongly supported her father. I think she had a lovely palace at a monastery, but lived there only when she wanted to. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I don't think she spent her life living in anger. Her history is a history of her father's reign, and it is one of the most important sources for the time period of the First Crusade. So it's a key mm. source for the whole of the Eastern Mediterranean, um, and it, it covers the period from um, 
1081 up until the death of Alexius Komnenos in 1118. Hmm. And it's a big, thick, monumental history of the kind that will be familiar to people who've read um, other Greek histories um, like Thucydides or Hmm. Polybius uh, or Procopius. Uh, Mm -hmm. that type of history except it has some very strange parts we might discuss okay and that's that's called the alexiad is it that's the alexiad yeah Yeah. okay like the iliad but for her dad alexius (laughs) yeah yeah love it um what do what do we know about her early upbringing uh she was uh, born in the palace there was a special room in the imperial palace in constantinople that was lined with porphyry marble so that it was purple um, and so you could say hmm. that she was born in the purple or a porphyry genitos uh, and so she was born in the palace after her father took over he came to power uh, as the victor of a period of about 10 years of pretty much continuous civil war when different aristocratic families in the empire were fighting against each other to see who could become emperor. And this is a very ill-timed moment to have a lot of civil war and infighting because at the same time at which the Seljuk Turks were conquering the eastern part of the empire and the Normans were conquering the western part of the empire. Uh, So in 1071, the Normans conquered the city of Bari in Italy and the Seljuks uh, defeated the Romans at the Battle of Manzikert in um, the eastern part of the empire. Mm-hmm. And those two events uh, were signs and part of the massive losses militarily, which the empire uh, felt in the 1070s and 1080s. And so her father successfully got to the throne and then succeeded in staying on the throne and ruling pretty well for several decades, had a mm. long, stable reign, and had made some policy choices that might have caused problems down the road, but also stabilized things. And he deserves a great deal of credit for helping the Roman Empire survive mm-hmm. for another century or so until it was conquered by the Crusaders in the early 13th century. Mm. So her earliest memories would have been uh, living in Constantinople. And one of the ways that her father brought uh, about this period of peace was that he created a number of marriage alliances with all the former houses, right? So her mother Mm -hmm. uh, was from the Dukas family, which is one of the major rivals of her father's family. And Anna's husband was from the Vrenios family, um, which was, another one of these rival aristocratic houses. And Anna's father, Alexius, was responsible for capturing um, her husband's grandfather when he was revolting, right? And actually had his grandfather blinded. Um, So it was a moment of reconciliation when uh, they got married and brought together these different competing factions. Um, That happened when Anna was a teenager. Hmm. Um, but her father's policy was to try to use marriage as a way of stamping out um, uh, rivalries mm-hmm. and create a stable rule. And most people in her era um, and her class would have had some basic education, education to read Bible and Psalms and basic mm-hmm. fundamental literacy was generally done at home as, as a, a child men and boys after rudimentary education would work with tutors and go to schools 
and women sometimes got more education. Anna went far beyond the norms. And the person who writes her funeral encomium um, in the middle of the 12th century says that she would study at night secretly uh, mm. with eunuchs who were old and completely disinterested in sex is the implication. Um, and so these old men who were castrated were the people who taught her about literature. And she has such strength and virtue that she was able to withstand the rigors of reading about classical mythology and things. Mm. And throughout her history, she is quoting and alluding um, to Sophocles and Aeschylus mm -hmm. and the other tragedians um, and Homer uh, very frequently. So her text betrays a very extensive classical education. Uh, she also mm -hmm. studied medicine and studied philosophy, uh, Plato and Aristotle, um, mm -hmm. and was just extremely well-educated. Mm -hmm. And she wrote in a really beautiful high-class Attic Greek so the mm. Greek of the person who did her laundry was probably a lot closer to modern Greek, um, or at least moving in that direction. Mm -hmm. But the Greek in which she wrote could be read by anybody who's able to read Thucydides. Mm -hmm. How common... Then, excuse me? Yeah, how common at that point in time was the ability to uh, read and write amongst... Um, Re regular non-royalty uh, members, and then also uh, royalty members? Um, any, anyone in the aristocracy could read and write. Mm -hmm. So women and men could be expected to certainly read New Testament and probably also sermons of Basil the Great and Chrysostom and, and theology. Uh, mm -hmm. um, people who are very well educated could read all the classics as well. There seems to be pretty good indications that a lot of people who are not all that aristocratic could also read. Mm. So fundamental literacy, it's so hard to judge, mm -hmm. but fundamental basic write your name and read the Bible literacy was pretty common um, for a lot of people who would you know, have their own house, mm -hmm. own some property, um, have some means, um, but it was never restricted only to the clergy, for example, as it is in other cultures. Literacy was not something that you had to go to a monastery to become literate, um, and nor was it something that only very aristocratic and very well-off people um, could have. When you look at the sales, uh, which are our main documents for people who are not aristocratic that we have, we have documents um, which record the deeds of sale and the deeds of donation. We often have them. Those are preserved in monastic archives. So that's where, that's where the documents happen to end up, that we have them. Hmm. Um, some of the spelling is really, really awful. So when I say everybody's literate, um, it, it, it's kind of shaky like if you submitted this for a greek prose composition you totally flunk um but the person's writing right i can read it i can make out what they're saying and what they're doing is they're they're donating their property to the monastery yeah. um and a lot of it's very good yeah there's no no reason to denigrate it um yeah. and uh, so there's a lot of educational continuity and the time that anna was uh writing was an economically flourishing period for the Eastern Mediterranean. Mm. Um, so there were more people competing in Constantinople to be teachers of rhetoric than there had been uh, in previous centuries. 
and there is a lot of flourishing intellectual activity, uh, which just means that there are a lot of people who are reading and writing and reading and writing Homer and Aristotle and classical texts as well as theology. Mm. Tell, tell us more about her writings. Her Alexiad is long mm-hmm. and thick and the most part it's as I said before, a very um, standard history in that it follows the conventions of Greek historical writing, by which I mean, it's the story of things that men did in politics and the things they said in debate and the things that they did in war. And Mm -hmm. it's a sequential narrative of things that happened. So Mm -hmm. normal history. She frames it and at several times in various moments throughout the text, she drops this dispassionate historical narrative voice and takes on a very different voice that's highly feminized and is the voice of a lamenting woman. And she does this at the beginning and the end to encapsulate and to bookend her history within a funeral lamentation for her father. Mm. So she opens up and she closes with dramatic cries and sighs and mourning and explanations of her own sadness um, for the death of her father. Mm. And there are various moments throughout the history when something in the story will happen, which will make her pause and say, excuse me for a moment. And then she stops talking like a historian and issues a classical Greek lamentation using all the forms and the tropes and the styles that we associate with that kind of lamentation. Mm -hmm. And then she'll stop and she'll dry her eyes and say, excuse me, and now I have to go back to doing history. And she switches back into the normal historical voice. Mm -hmm. And what I think is happening Mm -hmm. is that uh, I mentioned at the beginning, she's the first woman to write a history in Greek that's following the, the norms of the genre of Greek historical writing. And she knew that this was something her society would think of as transgressive, inappropriate, and frankly, something that a woman couldn't do. And that's because their vision of men and women held that that men had a natural tendency towards rational dispassion. And that's what allowed them to get the emotional distance between what they experienced and their their passions and um, the the objective events of history to be able to write a dispassionate, clean narrative that wasn't swayed by how they felt about the history. Mm. And so that faculty of rational dispassion which was very much coded as a characteristic of men in her culture, was seen as an essential part of being a historian. So mm. why did women not write history? Well, they, they could read the Bible, but they weren't all that well educated. So it was the educational reason. But there's another reason that women are supposed to stay home and not talk to strangers. So they really couldn't do historical research. Mm. Right? So they're not supposed to leave the house. And women are supposed to be interested in domestic matters and spinning, right? Making cloth, spindle and distaff are the things that women in Anna's culture are supposed to be doing um, from, you know, Homer on. Uh, so those are supposed to be the interests of women, not battles and politics and the things men say in politics and the things men do on the battlefield. So they're not supposed to be interested in any of that stuff. Um, but 
also, and more fundamentally, women were seen as being subject to their emotions at the mercy of their feelings. And this passivity in the face of the emotional turmoil of experience was seen as just as natural for women as rational dispassion was considered natural for men. So a woman was fundamentally considered incapable of having the emotional self-control to put her feelings on the side and write a dispassionate narrative of history, even if she cared about battles and knew about politics and could leave the house to interview old soldiers and got out of the house to talk to anybody and got the education. So Anna's act of writing history was very transgressive and unusual and she was doing something that people in her culture frankly just thought that women couldn't and shouldn't do right but yet Mm -hmm. she's writing at a time when there's a lot more literary experimentation there's a real rhetorical flourishing she's in a position of tremendous power and privilege she's Mm -hmm. wealthy she's an empress she's had every advantage through life she decides she's going to try to do it anyway. Mm-hmm. But she knows she's being transgressive. And so she has a response in her history for all of those objections I just gave you. Everything I've just explained, these are the reasons why women didn't write history. She has a rhetorical answer for every single one of those things in her history. Mm-hmm. And the big one that um, women are supposed to be quiet and not go outside of their house and not be interested in history and politics um, and that it's arrogant for women to say that they can comment on men's deeds all of those accusations of, of arrogance and transgressiveness she tries to mitigate at the outset by saying that she's um she's really just doing a funeral lamentation mm. she's really just mourning for her dad and so she's proving that she's a normal good woman Right. Mm. And she's trying to elicit from her audience pity and condescending goodwill. Right. So when a woman cries and weeps and wails, the audience, the the people who are listening to her are supposed to say, oh, poor dear. Or the poor old lady, poor Anna. Right. And she's hoping that by saying, I, I, and, you know, oh, my, oh, me, oh, my, this is so awful. I'm so sad. I'm so lonely. I'm the Mm -hmm. poor old widow that her readers are going to say, oh, the poor dear. And if they're feeling sorry for the poor old widow, they're not going to be simultaneously pissed off at this arrogant woman who thinks she can write a history, right? Mm -hmm. So every time that she stands up for her credentials and says, you know, actually, I read classical Greek stuff, and I've had a fabulous education, and I've read philosophy, and I've read the classics, and I know what I'm talking about, and I have all these skills to write history, but don't think I'm boasting. No, almost the first paragraph of her history is, these are my skills, and I'm the emperor's daughter, and I know my subject really well, and these are all the reasons why you should believe that I have the capability of doing this, but don't think I'm boasting. And then she follows that up with some of her lamentation. Mm. So every time she stands up for her skills, she immediately turns around and weeps and wails Mm. and cries. Um, to get people to feel sorry for her. So, what, so I don't think she's really sad. There's no reason to think she's actually sad. Her, that, her dad died in old age after a very successful reign, and her mother and her husband, who she also mourns for, all, all died old and happy. 
but she's performing sadness mm. because of how it's going to interact with the gender culture of her society to get people to think that she's actually a good woman and a good historian at the same time. Mm. Do you believe when you when you read her work then um, incidences like that it, was it was it more strategic or and or did you pick up on sarcasm at all? It's a it's a strategy mm. and the uh, the strategy of crying and presenting oneself as suffering isn't something that she invented. That's a strategy that was used as a way of humbling oneself before an audience. Uh, in antiquity and in the second sophistic period. And that's pretty well known. There's a, a famous old academic article written by Glenn Most called The Stranger's Stratagem. And The Stranger's Stratagem is you come into this place, nobody knows you. You're going to talk about you know your stuff, what's going on in your life. There's an expectation people are going to think that you're arrogant and annoying because you're talking about yourself. So you tell your story as if it's a tale of woe. So the tale of, whoa, oh, poor me, these are the things I've suffered. That's the way that you talk about yourself without being obnoxious, right? So this is established, well-known um, strategy for talking about oneself without being considered a jerk um, that Anna just used. And then she plays it up in a much more elaborate fashion because she's got a larger history and a bigger problem to deal with. Um, but it's definitely a strategy. And mm -hmm. I wouldn't term any of what she's doing sarcasm um and, and she plays it sincere and when i say there's no reason for her to mourn her mom everybody mourns their mom mm. you know it is a, it's a human natural thing people get sad about the passing of their relatives mm -hmm. um, so is there something that sparks the deep intensity um is there anything particularly tragic about her case no is she being disingenuous and saying that she misses her husband and her mother and her father? Of course not. You know, they're, they're, mm -hmm. I, I don't know of anybody who doesn't actually miss their parents when they pass. Mm -hmm. I'm sure there are some people, but I, I wouldn't counter. Like that. Generalizing. I understand. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, so is the, is the Alexiad then is the demarcation of that for the most part on her father's life and his reign or does it go outside of that um, area it's uh, very much focused on his reign uh, it, it starts before he takes power um, with his sort of youthful exploits as a general and it describes the coup that mm -hmm. brought him to power and covers the all the events of his lifetime it's a long and tumultuous reign in which a lot of things happened so it has a lot of ex coverage of the events we call the First Crusade. Mm -hmm. It has considerable information about um, the Turks, also people on the empire's northern border, Cumans and Pechenegs and uh, Bulgarians and uh, Normans. Uh, so the attacks of um, Robert Giscard and the Normans who conquered um, southern Italy and conquered Greece and then mm -hmm. were beaten back and then came again with um, Bohemond, um, who's Robert's son, uh, with the First Crusade. That's all talked about in great detail. Mm -hmm. um, and Robert Giscard and Bohemond become the, the bookends for the big narrative in that the first crisis of Alexius's reign is the, the first battle of Drachium, uh, which uh, Robert Giscard 
beats him very, very badly. Mm. And then sort of the last, one of the last big events that Anna describes is the second battle of Darachium in which his son Bohemond is defeated. So these kind of become mm. the, the bookends that um, create some narrative structure in the history. But there are many um, events that are narrated in great detail. It's a really rip-roaring good history. Mm-hmm. Um, so it can, it'll be kind of surprising when you start into it at the first paragraph. Um, you'll think, oh yeah, this is a, this is a normal Greek history. It has many of the, mm-hmm. the things that you would expect in the opening of a history written in Greek. If you're familiar with you know, Xenophon and um, mm-hmm. other Greek historians, Mm-hmm. It won't seem strange. Uh, then her limitations will seem a little weird, but mm-hmm. then you're back into this historical narrative, just tremendously good fun. Um, so if you would love reading about battles and mm-hmm. um, great events of history in the Eastern Mediterranean, I just highly recommend that you read the whole of the Alexia. What do you think she was motivated by? What, were, what, what do you think her ambitions were in writing the book? Well, she's writing it at the time when her nephew, her brother Ioannis, had a son, Manuel, who mm-hmm. becomes emperor. Um, and in his reign, the crusading movement is gaining momentum. So the, the Second Crusade and subsequent waves, we, the numbers of the Crusades are all modern. It's like a, a, a 19th century historical way of talking about them. Mm-hmm. Um, the people who were alive in the Middle Ages just experienced these as sort of waves of people from the West coming to try to intervene in the politics in the Eastern Mediterranean. Mm-hmm. Um, but there was increasing calls for the Roman Empire to abandon its long-standing strategy of allying with whoever is going to advance the interests of the Roman Empire uh, in favor of allying with the people who are Christians fighting the Muslims. And there is, this is a matter of tremendous conversation that we can glimpse fairly darkly. Uh, I mean, that we don't have a whole lot of information on, but it's pretty clear. There are some people who thought that the Roman emperors should continue to ally with whoever's gonna be on their side and help them strategically, even if they are Muslim. Uh, and then there are other people who said, no, 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 we should all have a confessional alliance and that we should be aligned with the Westerners who are Christian mm-hmm. against whoever around us is Muslim on the grounds of religion. Mm-hmm. And that was a new thing. And Anna was motivated, um, I believe in part, she wants to honor her father's memory. Um, and in part, she's also using his story of the handling of the first crusade as a way of telling the court and the politicians of her own era later uh, how that they should not trust the Westerners, right? She is arguing firmly that the old style of allying with whoever is going to be on the side of the Roman Empire, even if that is a Muslim Turkish emir, right? Um, rather than having all the Christians on one side and all of the Muslims on the other. Um, so she's much more anti-Latin than we actually think that Alexios, her father, really was. Right? So she betrays him as seeing the Latins as the chief enemies, the most dangerous enemies to the empire, not really the, the Muslim Turks. They're really the Latins um, and the Crusaders. And so she portrays Alexius as managing them and thinking of that as, as the main worry of the empire. Mm. When we look at all of the information, um, 
Yeah, maybe. He certainly wasn't, you know, pro-crusader necessarily, but he wasn't nearly as anti-Latin or as suspicious of the crusaders as Anna portrays him as. Um, So that's a a matter Mm. of ongoing controversy. There's some people, Peter Frankopan, um, who you should have give an episode at some point as a mm-hmm. historian who actually thinks that her father did encourage the crusaders and did want them to come Interesting. Um, and and other people disagree with him but it's pretty clear that if you say why did she write this history it's a political statement that's using the experiences of her father's politics to make the case for the kind of politics she wants to see and she wants to see a much more traditional Roman policy of not caring about confessional alliances mm-hmm. and caring about the, the empire, empire first, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and against the, the Latins. Uh, and she wants people to remember her dad and make a memorial to him that's really great. Another thing she's doing quite systematically is uh, disproving the case that her husband made in his history uh, that stuck up for his own family and denigrated her father's memory. So you'll recall that I said that Anna was married to the son of one of the people that was involved in the civil wars mm-hmm. before Alexius's rise. Right? Her husband, Nikiforos Vrenios, was the grandson of mm-hmm. Nikiforos Vrenios, who rebelled against the Syrian emperor and was brought down by Alexius and blinded um, just before Alexius took power. And when her husband took his turn at writing history, he wrote a history of Alexius's early years. And it's really a history of that decade of civil war that I was telling you about when everybody was fighting everybody else. Mm. And that history begins with a little bit of a teasing denigration of Alexius. Like he's not, making him out to look all that good. And it's possible, is he joking? Is he making fun of Hmm. him? Is he really saying he's a coward? Um, And then as that book progresses, as the different chapters move forward, it gets to be increasingly critical. So at the end of that book, he creates what I consider to be a quite scathing portrait of Alexius as uh, craven and really bloodthirsty mm. and ruthless and uh, treacherous and winning only because he hires Turks to do the actual fighting for him um, and really just quite craven. And mm. Anna's history takes every single point that her husband made about you know, everything, way in which he knocked Alexius's character and refutes it. Right? So she retells all of the stories that are in her husband's history, most of the stories, right? Many of the stories that are in his husband's history that her husband uses to say that Alexius was a horrible guy. Um, she uses, she tells the same story over again. It's like, no, 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 it didn't happen that way. Hmm. This is why he's great. Um, so one of the things she's doing is refuting his history and saying that her dad was really an awesome guy, um, which is important because when modern historians get their their teeth into Anna, what they've done is misread her lamentation as really all about anger and anger because she didn't get to be empress because her coup failed. And they see her as the one who wanted to be empress, but she only failed because her husband was such a wimp and refused at the last minute to murder his brother-in-law. Um, which would require that Nikiforos 
not want to be emperor and think that you know John was the right person to be emperor, Johannes. Um, and um, if you actually look at his history, mm. he's the one who's making a case for his own family as being potentially mm. great emperors. Mm. Uh, and Anna's history is refuting that and sticking up for her brother. Mm-hmm. Uh, when when did uh, Nicky Forrest write his um, piece, and then and then when after that did uh, Anna write hers? I really, I really wish we had a firm evidence mm-hmm. for when he wrote his history. It's one of the things we really don't quite know. Mm-hmm. Um, it's clearly before Anna. He died quite a bit before she did. Okay, um, and I think it is after Ioannis, his brother-in-law, took power. I think after Alexius has died, though there's no real way to prove that. Mm-hmm. If you say it was written in Alexius's last few years, then you have to give it a much more political reading and saying that he's making a case that he should become emperor, mm-hmm. right? Because he writes this very heroic, appealing portrait of his grandfather um, and saying that he's just absolutely fabulous and this really pretty scathing portrait of Alexios. And if he's writing that when Alexios is uh, on his you know, declining in health, but the succession is not yet assured, then I think you'd have to take it as saying that he should become emperor instead of Alexius' son. Um, mm-hmm. But you could also say it was written after um, Ioannis had taken power. And the reason I go for that one ultimately is that Nikiforos's history makes the case I've just explained that his grandfather would have been a better emperor than Alexius. He also is pretty strong in making an implicit case that these civil wars are horrifically, horribly bad for the empire Mm. and that everybody in the empire should get behind one person to rule so you can all stop killing each other and start fighting the Turks and the Normans. Um, and that case is implicit, but I think it's pretty strong. I think you mm. can't read this history and not think that he supported an end to the civil wars. And then that turns his history into an explanation of why he never did try to become emperor, why he did support Ioannis. Um, and that's because mm. he's the, the, the crowned heir, co-emperor of Alexius uh, with his own children, um, and ready to be take over as emperor. So to do anything to dispute that succession would be to say, let's have another round of civil wars, right? which is a would have been a pretty disastrous decision for the empire. And so he's kind of proving his loyalty and giving his apology and explanation. Hey, I want to support Ioannis, and this is why. Yeah, his dad's kind of a schmuck, but civil war is horrible. Um, so I see that as written in the 1120s, mm-hmm. um, you know, possibly a little later, he could have started it earlier. It does, um, because his text becomes more overtly critical of Alexius, it moves on. Uh, some people have said ages ago that he might have written the first two books while Alexius was alive and the second two after he died. Certainly, Ioannis didn't really... Uh, mind, he might have really enjoyed it. He might have liked hearing his dad criticized. Mm. Uh, certainly plausible. Mm-hmm. Um, he didn't give Nikki Forrest a hard time about writing it. Mm. Uh, 
So we don't really know. Um, but I think all things considered, I would place it, um, you know, sometime shortly after the death of Alexius. Okay. What and then Anna's writing the 20, 30 years after that. Okay. What what kind of relationship do you suspect uh, Nick, Nikki Forrest and Anna had then? So on one, one hand, uh, uh, her husband's um, really writing a scathing account of her father. Uh, he, he passes away years later, yeah. po- possibly 20, 30 years later. She, she writes a defense, which it sounds like is very um, contrary to what he wrote on a lot of points. What, what do we know about their relationship? Well, we don't know a whole lot. They had a whole mess of children, um, mm-hmm. so they got along in some ways. Um, <laughs> he must have been supportive of her education because given the norms of their times, um, all the time that she spent talking to male rhetoric teachers and philosophy commentators and intellectuals uh, were things that happened um, with the agreement of her husband. It's mm-hmm. not a situation in which um, a woman could be doing that kind of thing without it causing tremendous scandal, um, unless mm-hmm. her husband said, sure, um, you're fine with this. Uh, the meager commentary that we have about their, their marriage is that um, he was an intellectual. As we know from his history, his history is not as monumental as hers, um, but boy, do they have a lot in common. I mean, they're mm-hmm. both classically educated people who wrote about histories. Um, mm-hmm. So he's clearly an intellectual. He's remembered in court oratory as someone who's a tremendously good uh, general as well as intellectual and administrator, person who could do everything. Uh, so I think there's good reason to think that they had quite a lot in common and they got on well. The later story that is a, a much later 12th century story by Nikitas Koniatis. Hmm. Um, and he's the one who says that Anna wanted to be empress and that she schemed with her mother to put her husband on the throne instead of her brother and that her husband um, foiled her plot by losing his nerve at the last minute and failing to kill his brother-in-law. Um, so he's the one who sets up the idea that Anna wanted to be empress and that Nikiforus was a, a wimp and a wuss. Okay. Um, and he, that's a, so that's a, a later story, but it's one in which as part of that, he describes Anna as being absolutely furious with her husband for not murdering her brother and gives her a speech, um, which is um, very vulgar, in which she says that uh, nature had screwed up and given them the wrong genitals, right? and mm. she should be the man and rule instead of mm. her husband. Um, and that story uh, creates this um, idea in history that they had a really horrible marriage and that she hated him um, because he, he wimped out at the last minute. Um, I find that later story by Honiatis is that one strand in which she expresses her anger at her husband is part of an opening to his history in which every single character in her family is playing the exact opposite of the, the proper 
um, construction of gender for their culture, right? So mm. the, the mother is hating the children and the children are hating the mother and the father is, is yelling instead of being dispassionate and the mother is being a shrew and they're all doing the inversion of what they're supposed to do. Um, and it's all couched in highly sexualized innuendo terms. Mm. Um, and the, the fail of the coup uh, where I said Nikki Forrest is depicted as losing his nerve it's it's this long extended metaphor of failed orgasm i mean it's completely over the top Hmm. with the sexual innuendo um and leaving the reader if you're reading it in greek thinking my god these people are just disgusting so if you have internalized the gender norms of the late 12th century and think that you know women should be deferential and men should be in power and men should be dispassionate and women should be doing this all right if you believe all of that and you read his thing you think my goodness these people are absolutely horrible the Honiatis does that because he's blaming the collapse of the empire when it gets conquered by the crusaders in 1204 the empire gets conquered mm-hmm. um and he's in charge he's one of the people who's sort of running the show and working the upper administration as the empire is heading towards that horrible collapse so when he's writing his history he's doing everything he can to blame it all on somebody else and what he blames it on, he puts the, the root of the rot of the Roman Empire is placed on the moral dysfunction mm. and gender inversion of the house of Komnenos in Anna's family. So that's his mm. argument, I think. This is a very complicated text. But one of the things he's doing is saying the reason why we have all these problems in the late 12th and early 13th century is because those people were morally awful. And so when you're reading this, however, in the English translation, which is sadly a horrible translation and leaves most of it out. Um, when you're reading it, you don't get any of the sexual innuendo, right? You're not going to get the, the plot line there. Um, and you're just going to think the only one that you do see is Anna's sentence in which she says she wished they had the wrong genitals, which is actually, that's actually not what the English says. The English mm-hmm. is totally different and made up. Um, but it's still it's sexually weird. That's the overt weird part. It feels like, my God, she's crazy. It's very uh, unappealing. Um, in the original Greek, they're all like that, right? Mm. Um, so long way of saying his story uh, doesn't make sense as it makes it makes sense as a historical strategy for explaining the story, but there's no reason that we should take it as stuff that actually happened. Mm. Um, and in light of the histories that Anna and Nikki Flores wrote, it's in fact the inversion of everything that an analysis of their own texts and their own words would led us to think that they would have happened. Um, so I don't buy it at all. Hmm. Uh, and there are other historians who say, well, it's got to be true because Coniates wouldn't lie. Um, and I think Coniates lying. Um, hmm. And if you remove that, then there's no reason to think that Anna and Nikki Forrest didn't get along just fine. Um, and they, they did differ about uh, whether or not Alexius was an upstanding, straightforward guy or not. Um, hmm. But you will recall when you asked why did she write her history? Mm-hmm. The main answer I gave, the first answer, is that she's commenting on the politics of her era. And then a second thing she's doing is fixing up her husband's view of her dad. Right? Mm-hmm. Um, so we don't have a whole lot of evidence. I don't think that the story that she hated him because he didn't murder her brother uh, makes a whole lot of sense. Mm-hmm. Was, was she exiled? at some point to a monastery? Oh, no, 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 okay. there's, there's no exile. Um, we know from uh, the 
foundation charter of her mother's monastery mm. that Anna had um, some palatial apartments in that monastery. And she probably stayed there some of the time, but it was only one of the palaces that she had. The uh, story that she was exiled comes from a passage near the end of the Alexiad, mm -hmm. where she decides she's going to tell her readers about her historical sources and how she found the information for history and how she did her research methodology. Mm -hmm. And the story about how she conducted her archival research has her doing things like talking to men she doesn't know and going outside of her house and traveling around with her father's army while they were on campaign, all of which were things that good women didn't do. Hmm. So the way she handles this is she talks for two or three sentences about her historical methods. And then she says, as you can guess, oh dear, oh dear, oh me, oh my, I'm so sad. My life has been so tragic. Here are my tragedies. Hmm. And then she goes back. She gives you like three sentences of lamentation. And there's, oh yes. And I also interviewed old generals and I had you know, dispatches, you know, um, records from this place and that place. And oh my, my life is so horrible. My daddy is dead and I'm so sad. Um, and then I interviewed old soldiers, right? Mm -hmm. So it's, again, this ping pong back and forth um, mm -hmm. between lamentation and talking about her sources. And in one of those, she says one of her lamentation breaks, she's just said that she's gone out and interviewed lots of old soldiers to get the real story. Mm -hmm. She said that uh, we've never left, um, we've been isolated for 30 years. And so for 30 years, we've been alone and haven't talked to anybody. She just said she went and talked to everybody, right? So it's mm. a clear contradiction of the thing that she just said. And it's in this you know, lamentation mode. Um, and so I interpret all of these lamentation interludes. One of them, she said that she suffered terrible things since before she was six, right? And I think as an imperial princess, she's one of the most privileged people around in her era. I don't think she suffered much when she was a baby in the imperial palace. So I don't think that's true. Um, and I also think that when she says, I haven't left the house in 30 years, I don't think that's true either. And I think both of those statements are part of this strategy of it's a stranger stratagem. You tell a tale of woe to make people think that you're not obnoxious while you're doing something obnoxious, right? Mm. So as she's talking about her research and how she's breaking the rules for female decorum, she laments that she hasn't been out of the house in 30 years. And that's what's taken, that's the, all of the evidence hmm. that she was cast into her monastery is from that one sentence. Hmm. Right? Okay. So it's the modern historians who take that and say, oh, she's been isolated for 30 years um, and she had this failed coup. She must have been torn, uh, put in jail. Hmm. The monastery is a prison, right? And so and no one, no one said that she's exiled outside of Constantinople, but it's internal exile in her monastery where she was stuck for so long. Hmm. Um, and that's that pieces sort of falls into place in the middle of the 19th century. Okay. How influential was her work after she was, after she wrote it? So the Alexia, she writes it. Um, she had motivations to write it. One you said was to probably influence um, uh, government in some way, the aristocrats towards a certain direction. Do we know how do we know if it was read how widely it was read and if it had any influence those things are all hard to tell mm -hmm. um clearly it was read we have it the manuscript tradition which is how you 
when thinking about a medieval or an ancient text, and you want to know if anybody read it, all you can really judge by is, is it quoted? And mm -hmm. how many manuscripts of it do we have? And with the Alexiad, um, it mostly circulated in different chunks. So there's the part about the Turks circulated fairly widely, and the parts about the Crusaders circulated fairly widely. And we don't have very many manuscripts at all of the whole thing. Um, particularly the ending, um, we have only one manuscript of her final part, where when Alexius is dying, um, she says, now I need to um, stop writing as a historian and end the history and begin the lamentation. And the, the last 11 pages or so are, are pure lamentations. She's mm -hmm. talking about the sadness of his death. Um, and the number of manuscripts we have for that drops tremendously because for a lot of people, hey, that's not part of the history. She said so. She said she stopped with the history and now she's writing a lamentation and who cares about Alexius? Mm -hmm. So they're not going to bother copying that part. Mm -hmm. um, the prologue, her opening, it survives in an excellent copy in a manuscript that's about really good chunks of rhetoric. So a manuscript that's collections of really good writing kept that part because it's beautiful writing. And the different parts you know, circulated there's some copies of the whole thing, um, but there are different copies of different parts. And what's interesting is that in the early modern period, so the first Western Europeans to write about her say, wow, she wrote a really good history. And they're really quite positive. Mm -hmm. And then um, it's in the, the 1640s, I might be getting this wrong, but at, at that mm -hmm. point, someone puts together an edition of the whole thing and publishes a complete manuscript that has the beginning and the end and all the parts in, together. Okay. And it's after that, that the Western European historians start to talk about the arrogant woman who's writing this history, who's lamenting mm. and crying, and there must be something wrong with her. And what's wrong with the, the crazy woman who's crying all the time then turns into, oh, she's crying because she's really just pissed off. She says she's crying, but she's really angry. And why is she angry? She's angry because she never got to be empress because anybody, any woman who would want mm. to write history must be really interested in politics. Right? Um, Interesting. So that's how that story goes. Mm -hmm. um, as to whether or not it influenced the politics of her nephew's reign and the um, the back and forth about how much they should be supporting the Crusaders, that's mm -hmm. really hard to tell. Mm -hmm. I think there were a lot of people weighing in on that one, um, and the policy went back and forth, um, mm -hmm. and that it's it was people could make a case that yes, we should have the Westerners help and we should work with them and that would be great. And you can also make a case that this is a really bad idea. Um, you know, I will know that it was the Western Crusaders who conquered the Roman Empire um, in 1204. So yeah. Anna was right. <laughs> I think, you know, yeah. I'd like, I'd like to stick up for her historical <laughs> vision um, that her, her political instincts that these people are gonna be the death of the empire <laughs> actually turned out to be correct. <laughs> what do we know about the later period of her life? Um, she, um, is known to have continued to write letters and study Aristotle and, mm -hmm. um, write her history, which probably took a while. Um, most of her children died before reaching adulthood. Um, but we do have, a, um, 
a funeral oration of one of her uh, grandchildren. So she did have um, some um, descendants. Mm -hmm. um, don't know that much about what she was doing. She's described in her funeral oration as being the family doctor and using her medical knowledge mm -hmm. to take care of her family and her, you know, her um, nieces and nephews and mm -hmm. their children. Mm -hmm. um, closing question. Um, how has uh, Anna's work influenced um, uh, contemporary uh, society, do you think? I think Anna's work should have a lot more readers than it does. Hmm. So I think she's had influence on the way we tell the history of the Eastern Mediterranean because there are many, many events for which she's, if not our best source, our only source. Um, and so she adds to our knowledge about the politics and the military history of this era. I think that she ought to be read more often mm. as a writer of a really good history. Um, but unfortunately, because she has this label of being a Byzantine um, rather than a Roman, um, mm. people tend to think that that history is strange and obscure and difficult to grasp. Um, so I would say an answer to that, that um, we should read her more often in terms of connections between her history and contemporary life. Um, one of the major battles that she fought was to try to appear humble and not be self-aggrandizing mm -hmm. when she's trying to write her history. Mm -hmm. And in the modern contemporary American Academy, some studies have said that the whole of the difference between the number of citations that um, female researchers have versus male researchers stems from the fact that men are willing to cite themselves hmm. and that women are concerned with being humble and not being self-aggrandizing hmm. and so that they don't cite their own work hmm. and that if women scientists would put their own writings in their footnotes, that that would be enough um, to bring them up to the same number of, of citations per author uh, that male uh, written um, science scientific journals. Uh, we're talking about the whole academy, mm -hmm, right? Mm -hmm. um, so for all the different fields, um, which is pretty stunning that you think that we're still fighting that same battle, that women are sort of taught that they need to be deferential and demure and mild um, and not mm. self-aggrandizing. And when it comes to putting in your footnotes, there's that moment, are you telling people that you should read your own work? And I gotta tell you, say, what am I gonna recommend? Because what a footnote does is it says, the next thing you should read is this, All right? And when you say, the next thing you should read is something I wrote, that does feel aggrandizing. Mm -hmm. um, but since mm -hmm. I've read about that, and since I've my project on Anna, I put myself in my footnotes a lot more than yeah. I <laughs> This has been a um, wonderful chat. Leonora, it's been good to have you on the show. Thank you for joining me today. Oh, thank you. It's always fun to talk about Anna. Yeah, one of the uh, uh, final messages that Leonora left with everybody is that uh, uh, she believes Anna's work should be um, read more. So remember that uh, Dr. Neville uh, wrote a book, Anna Comnini, The Life and Work of a Medieval Historian, published by Oxford University Press. I'll drop a link to it in the show notes on the ithacabound.com um, subpage that's going to be associated to this uh, episode. 
Leonora and everyone listening, as always, I wish you a marvelous journey. Bye for now. Thank you. Bye-bye. Hey again, if you enjoyed today's episode, please subscribe to the podcast and I wish you a bountiful rest of your day. Bye for now.